Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants. They will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, you're so good. We live in a world that's just so marred by sin. So amazing to see this picture. We've seen so many pictures in the book of Revelation, and they've all been wondrous. Yeah, scary. This one is glorious. It's almost too much. Thank you for giving it to us, oh God. Thank you for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for the promise that one day we will be able to behold you face to face. Help us to just capture a glimpse of what that means. Help your people, oh God. Take the word, massage it deeply into their hearts and encourage them. Help them to stand strong in this age, oh God. It's the point of the book. You teach them, train them, correct them, even rebuke them in righteousness. Father, by your spirit, take your word and make them more like Jesus. Would you help me? Take me, your fallible, weak servant, God. Protect me from error. Hold me together. Use me for your glory. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. God, you're my rock and my redeemer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in your hands 
or on your mobile device, which is okay, is a copy of God's word. Or maybe in the pew in front of you, you have a copy of God's word, the Bible. It consists of 66 divinely inspired books written by 35 to 40 various human authors. And these books were compiled over the course of approximately 1,500 years. And you take that collection, and it's made up of multiple different genres, ranging from historical narrative to poetry to apocalypse, like the book of Revelation, you know, the really weird stuff. And helpfully, over the course of time, and really just solidified in the last 500 or 600 years, the Bible has been broken down into chapters and verses. So now we can easily reference passages. And I can generate the point that I now want to make. How many chapters are there in the Bible? I mean, I could stop and let you count. Or you can say, you're the pastor, you did the work, right? Somebody just Googled it, I know you did. 1,189. There's 1,189 chapters. And do you know how many of these chapters take place under the curse of sin? All but four. All but four. 1,185 out of 1,189 chapters take place under the curse of sin. Only Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the first two and the last two. The first two and the last two give us a picture of what life is like without the presence and the pervasiveness of mankind's constant rebellion against God in sin. So it should come as no surprise then that as we continue our journey through these last two chapters of Revelation that we see echoes of the first two chapters of Genesis along the way. For the paradise that God created in the beginning, the paradise that was corrupted when Adam and Eve fell into sin, that paradise is being renewed. That paradise is being restored for us into our heavenly and our eternal home, into the place where we're going to dwell with God forever. Last week, we joined the Apostle John as he began to describe this very thing, his vision. You remember the the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, what the angel had called the wife, the bride of the Lamb. It's a symbolic image, and it was given to us as a picture, a picture of the church of all ages, a visual representation of God's people, us. All of God's people, as they dwell with him in the new heaven and the new earth, now, 
As John continues in the verses before us, he's going to continue to unfold or describe his vision. And I like this because he begins to act a little bit like a a tour guide. And he's going to point out for us what's important. He's going to point out to us some redemptive historical, that's a big term, but redemptive historical realities that help us to understand not only the glories of heaven. And listen, I don't think there's any way that John could tell us everything that he sees. Okay? He's telling us what God is inspiring him to tell us. And it's important, of course. He's not only telling us about the glories of heaven, but listen, he's telling us also about the beauty of the salvation that we get to enjoy as we commune or imbibe with Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit, even today, even now, as we gather here. So to help us understand the passage before us, I'd like to follow John's lead and guide us. I'm a really bad tour guide, but I'll try and guide us through it just like he does. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to do this by just asking two questions. The first question, so this is our first point, what is not in the city? What does John point out that is not in the city? And the second question is, what is in the city? What is in the city? What does he point to that is in the city? So in chapter 21, verses 22 through 27, John makes three negative statements. He does this for us. That's why I said I'm going to follow his lead. He makes three negative statements, statements about what we do not find in the city. Look down with me at them. The first one is in verse 22. He says, I saw no temple. I saw no temple. The second one is in verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. And the third one is in verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. So let's look at each one of these more closely. He points out those three things. Now, it is near impossible to fathom a city without a temple or multiple temples. It's near impossible. Think about this with me. Almost all ancient cities had a temple, especially in John's day. All cities had a temple. In fact, almost all cities in our day have some type of temple as well. You could wander to the most remote village in Asia, and you'll likely find a Buddhist, or a Hindu place of worship. You could travel to the farthest reaches of South America, and you're probably going to find some type of Catholic shrine. You could take a train across Europe or North America, and what are you going to see littered across the landscape? Churches. I'm sure you're going to encounter Islamic mosques in most town squares in the Middle East. And in places where even deism is rejected, heads of state are enshrined all over the place in palace temples. Even I have been to one of the most remote places on the continent of Africa. And in less than 24 hours time, 
I came across a small statue in a little mud hut dedicated to a village ancestor. I worshiped with a group of Christians under a mango tree. And I was awakened at sometime around four in the morning to loud calls to prayer from a makeshift mosque. When we read that there is no temple in this city, it's shocking. It shocks the early reader, and it should kind of shock us. Unless we understand, unless we have ears to hear, right, and eyes to see, unless we have the spirit, because we go, but this city doesn't need a temple, right? That's what makes this city so great. It doesn't need one. I mean, temples exist. Why? Because they're places where one goes to meet with God, right? Uh, it goes, you go to meet to bring God down, right? You go to meet with God there. The new Jerusalem doesn't need such a place since, as the text tells us, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, in this city gone is the false, sinful worship of false gods. There are no false gods, so there'll be no false worship of false gods. And even in a place like this where we worship the one true God, even the types and shadows and covenant longing for the true God, even that will be replaced with full communion with God, right? Because he will be there. We will worship, but there's no need for a temple or a building. We will be there with God because we are the building being built up, right? God himself is there. We will have full communion with him. And this shouldn't surprise us because it's the same presence that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. It's the same presence that we anticipate even today. We gather here today and we long, we long to be in God's presence. We experience it even in part as we abide in Christ day by day. We have the spirit dwelling within us. We have a foretaste of glory divine as the hymn writer said. Think about that. Everything that we anticipate that we have a foretaste of becomes a blessed reality. There in heaven, he is there. Well, not only is the new Jerusalem a city without a temple, it lacks physical lights. It lacks physical lights. Look again at verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. We're reminded again of the creation story from Genesis 1, when God spoke light into being. When did he do that? On the first day. God spoke light on the first day. But then, when did he speak the sun, the moon, and the stars into existence? On the fourth day. And people get really uncomfortable, right? They go, how how do you do that? How does that happen? People are very uncomfortable with that, with this, right? Because we're so scientifically smart. Well, really, it's just they're uncomfortable with God. People insist you can't have light without sun and moon and stars. You can't. Well, you can when God himself is the light. When God himself is the source of light. And that's exactly the return to the beginning. 
When God's presence fills the eternal city, there's no further need for celestial lights to which we're so accustomed. But this is where we get hung up, and we shouldn't get hung up here. This is not about astronomy. This is not an astronomy lesson. God is showing John, he's showing us that the unsurpassed splendor that radiates from his glory and from the glory of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is more than enough to illuminate the whole city the whole time. That's enough. You don't need any other outside source. God himself is the light. And that's all underscored in verses 24 through 26. We have highlighted for us Again, this universal vastness of God's plan, his redemptive plan for the nations. I just said it, I'll say it again. Jesus Christ was sent into the world as a light, a light for the nations. So we see people from all nations, people from all tribes and tongues and peoples. They're going to be represented in heaven. And just as we saw last week, don't lose sight of this. It's God's plan to not only save a vast number of people, but a vast number of peoples. And so we're going to see this repeated again and again, even as we come to the end. The nations. The last thing which John notes that is not in the city is sin. He says in verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. The word unclean here is likely referring to those who have not been regenerated, those whose hearts have not been made clean, those whose hearts have not been changed, those who are still defiled by sin. The word detestable is a reference to those perverse evils condemned all throughout the Bible as heinous to God. Some of these sins are laid out even in 2215. You can look over there if you want. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What I want to point to is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. If you want to turn there, you can. And stay there when I finish. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Paul writing, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You get the point. These will be outside. These perverse things, they will face the second death, which we talked about at the judgment day. They'll be outside. There will be no sin. But don't miss the good news, though. As we read this, as we hear this, while there's still today, there's good news. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then look at the last phrase of verse 27 back in Revelation chapter 21. 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's that book of life again, which we've seen before, the Lamb's book of life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sin, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you're living for Jesus, daily dying to sin and living to righteousness, if you're putting off those things that are here listed in chapter 22 and back in 1 Corinthians 6 and all throughout the Bible, uh, those things that all of us are prone to do because we are sinners, if we're confessing and repenting and being renewed, if we are living for Christ, then we can rest in wonderful truth. We've been chosen. We've been called. We've been regenerated. We've been justified. We've been adopted. We're being sanctified. We will indeed be glorified. We will be brought into this heavenly city. We've been brought into the presence of God. We will get to experience this life. Life as it was before the fall, life without the presence of sin. I'm not even going to ask you to imagine what that will be like. Because you can't. I can't. I can't imagine what a life free from sin will be like. I can't, because I'm a sinner. A life without an evil thought, an evil motive, an evil action, It's impossible in the flesh, but you know what? Here's the promise. One day, you'll experience it. One day, you'll experience it. All of us who are in Christ will experience it in this city, in this city where there's no sin. So that's what's not in the city. As John walks through, no temple, no sun or moon, no sin. Now let's see what's in it. John draws our attention to four things that are present in the city. The first is found in 22.1. He points to the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. When we hear that, we're drawn to probably many things in the Old and New Testament, right? You might think of Genesis 2.10, right? We got to go there because we're going back to then. You might remember in Genesis 2, then there was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden, right? There's a river that flows uh, that's picked up in Ezekiel 47.1, where Ezekiel sees a river flowing from below the threshold of the temple that goes out to the nations. Um, think about the words of Jesus in John 4.14. 4, he says that the water that he gives is going to forever satisfy. He says that it will become a spring of water that wells up within us to eternal life. It was also Jesus who in John 7.37 offered Rivers of living water, he offered them to those who come to him. Come to me and I will give you rivers of living water. And then later, John explains it's a reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the future. Now here in the heavenly city, we see this river flowing freely. It's pure. It's flowing purely. It's flowing abundantly, sufficiently, always and forever it's there nourishing us, satisfying us. All who are there have access to it. It looks like it it just flows right through the middle of the main thoroughfare, if we're thinking about that. Makes you wonder, how do you walk on it? There's so much here that you're glad it's a picture, right? You're like, wow, but it's there. The second thing we see is tied to the first. Notice from where it flows. From where does it come? Look at verse one. It flows from the throne of God. 
and of the lamb. Also note, you see the throne of God and of the lamb in verse three. That's the second thing that we see. The presence of the throne is significant. There's no temple there, but the throne is there. The throne is there. It's significant because it underscores a redemptive reality of the entire Bible. And it's this. God is the eternal sovereign and creator and ruler of the universe, period. At no point in the future does God cease to exist being God. At no point does God set aside the creator-creature distinction with us, his creation. You're like, whoa, Pastor Dan, pipe down. Why are you getting so excited about that? You ever talked to anyone in a cult before? I don't have time for a thorough apologetics lesson here. A lot of cults teach that you can become a god. Listen to this, Mormons. Listen to what they teach. All the father's children, including humans on earth, possess the same potential to become gods, like the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, who are all separate gods, since they are of the same species. In fact, they go on to say that every human spirit once existed as a divine intelligence before becoming the spirit children of the Father. If your brain doesn't short-circuit at that, it should talk to me afterwards. That is heresy. That should be rejected. That is not Christian. Period. The Mormon church is not the only cult that teaches things like that. That's why I say that. It's important for us to see the throne there. Because God is God. He is God. He is the creator. God always has been and always will be God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we will always be his creation. We will forever worship him around his throne. Yes, we will reign with him as our God. You look there, it's there in verse 5 of 22. We will reign with him. But we will not reign with him as God's. Instead, John just repeats here what we've already seen back in chapter 7. Turn there with me. Turn back to chapter 7. Isn't it great when the Bible doesn't contradict itself? Because it doesn't. But look what he sees back in verses 15 through 17. Speaking of those who are before the Lamb forever, who are before God forever, being made white through the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before, I'm in chapter seven, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will always be 
our God. So far, we've seen that the river of the water of life and the throne of God and of the Lamb is in the city. Next, we see from verse 2 that there is also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Now, this tree was also seen back in Genesis, but it was in chapter 322, not in chapters 1 and 2. It's seen in 322, and it's seen in the midst of the garden. And if you remember, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and kept from eating of this tree. Do you remember that? It's almost like they didn't know it was there. (laughs) But if they had eaten of it, they would have remained in that perpetual state forever. Seemed to have granted eternal life, because if they would have eaten it, then they would have remained unable to be redeemed. It's fascinating. Uh, Maybe when we preach through Genesis, we'll we'll talk more about that. Um, But Adam and Eve were banished, so they wouldn't eat from this. So it was obviously there uh, at God's creation. God now sees this tree of life growing on both sides of the river in the heavenly city. Now, scholars really debate this. I remember when I was in seminary taking Greek, and we spent all of our time in Paul like going through his letters in my exegesis class, and I showed up to the final, and we had to translate this passage for my final. And we all looked at each other like, what? Like, this is hard. Like, we had no idea what this means. We couldn't tell if the tree is like one tree on both sides or if it's multiple trees. We just kind of gave up and just gave ourselves to the mercy of the professor. Whatever grade we get, we get. I won't tell you what I got, but I passed. So either way, they've argued about it, and it's, I think, the best we can come to, and now we've got some other Greek scholars in here who might be able to help me out with this, looking at a couple of you. I think it's a grove of trees, right? And there's trees on both sides, and I think that helps us see the multitude of the amount of fruit that's here. It helps us to see that it's in line with the abundant blessings that God gives. It's the multiple amounts of the fruits, and it's season. The idea is is that we never stop being nervous nourished and sustained and provided for by God, that the eternal life that we have is always there. It's never in danger. We always get to do what? What do I say at communion every week? Taste and see that the Lord is good. We never run out, ever. You may not have communion one Sunday, but you never cease to taste and see that the Lord is good. In heaven. Lastly, we won't be surprised to find that John sees people there. You're like, duh. Of course. (laughs) We just talked about that last week. The whole picture is people, right? John sees people there, but we may be surprised how John describes them. And I want to take just a moment to point this out. At the end of verse three, he says that his servants will worship him. Now, the word he uses for worship, the verb latruo, can mean both to serve and to worship, It, it means both things. So literally, his servants will serve him. His servants will serve him by worshiping him. Now, this language is meant to echo, to bring us back to language that was used to describe Adam back in Genesis 1.28, where Adam was placed in the garden to work and to keep. It's repeated again. He's a worker who keeps. He's a keeper who works. Why? So that the garden would be fruitful and multiply so it would continue to bear fruit. And so like Adam, we're to continue to bear fruit. We're to continue to serve. We're to worship so that we'll continue to worship, to make more worship so that we'll keep worshiping, so that we'll keep worshiping. We're going to engage in glorifying God and enjoying him forever so that we'll glorify him more and enjoy him forever and can keep 
worshiping and worshiping. Now, you're probably going, okay, Pastor Dan, when are you going to tell me we get to play golf? When are you going to tell me that we get to, I, the Bible doesn't tell me that, so I'm not going to tell you that. But here's what I am going to tell you. You get to serve God forever. You get to worship him forever. And then there comes that like blow your face off moment. You get to see his face. You get to see his face. Some of you get it. The kids get it. I hear them. You get to see his face. Your name is going to be on your, his name's going to be on your foreheads. I, I just can't put into words what that means. It's like the kids say, if you know, you know. I mean, Austin and Lacey and Luke try to sing about it. It's overwhelming. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Do you get to see his face? So in the city of our God, there's no temple. There's no sun or moon. There's no sin. There's the river of life, the throne of God and of the lamb, the tree of life. And then there's God's people. It's it's quite a tour. It's amazing. I'm pretty convinced we've only seen just a little sample of all that there will be to see. Sure, we'll spend the rest of eternity. I think part of that worship and seeing his face is just continuing to grow in grace and knowledge. Continuing to grow. But I think a challenge for a pastor and for God's people is how do we take what we've heard and learned? How do I apply it? So what, Pastor Dan? I mean, we could leave it at just, I get to see his face. But there's two things I don't want you to miss. From the very beginning, we've said this about the book of Revelation. It's for all of God's people. All of the book is for all of God's people for all of time. Since it was written until Christ returns. It's not a little orphan Annie decoder ring. Okay, It's not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. And so it's written to provide hope to every Christian as they endure life in a broken and fallen world. So whether that's suffering, persecution, just daily spiritual attack and melees, followers of Jesus need the book of Revelation. You and I need the book of Revelation because we need to remain steadfast in the truth of the salvation that is ours through the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that's rescued us from the wrath to come and firmly plants our future in heavenly glory. What we've seen is not some fairy tale. It's real. You will be there. Revelation is a call to fix your eyes on heaven Revelation is a call to cultivate a longing for heaven by meditating on it. 
Think about it. If you know the precious blessing that awaits you in that city, the heavenly city of God, I'm telling you, you are going to be strengthened more and more to endure. I know some of you are hurting today. I look around the room and I know some of you are hurting very deeply. And I know that all of us are enduring some type of hardship, some disappointment, some struggle. So here's my invitation. Fix your eyes on things above. I'm not telling you it's an escape from what you're facing today, because it's not. I'm telling you, it will increase your hope. It will strengthen your faith. It'll heighten your resolve to live for Jesus, to stand for him, to serve him, to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength for his glory, for your good, and for the sake of his kingdom. And the second thing, I mean, we just got a glimpse. But even a glimpse of the glories of the heavenly city, seeing just a glimpse of it, here's a question. Why are we so quick Why am I, I'm going to say we, okay? Why are we so quick to grab a hold of the counterfeit stuff that this world has to offer? Why do we so easily buy the lies of Satan that the pleasures of this world are far more satisfying than the river of the water of life or the fruit from the tree of life? Why? Why do we so readily forsake the living and abiding word of God for the foolish and nonsensical and overly sensational lying and deceiving words of political and entertainment pundits and icons that just come at us every moment of every day? Why do we long to serve the rulers of this age? But find any reference to serving the king of the universe and the sovereign of our hearts to be a burden that's too heavy to bear. One question I wrote down that's really hard for me is, why do we consider unfaithfulness to a friend, a sports team, or an auto manufacturer a greater offense than unfaithfulness to the Savior? who faithfully gave up the glories of heaven to take on flesh, to live for us, to die for us or rise again for us so that we can have new life in him. As I thought about the prodigal, I thought, why would we settle for the slop fed to pigs when we can feast at the table of the king? Why? Why do we love the counterfeit junk? I don't know if I'll ever stop pursuing it. But I know I need God's help. Do you? Yeah, we all do. So let's put our hope in him. Let's pray for help to recognize it. Let's do what Jesus told us to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the glories of heaven 
will be added unto you. Amen. And amen. Would you grab your bulletins? We have our affirmation of faith before us.